this is Kiai, the label lead of Feelers, an artist-run art and tech label based in Singapore. Welcome to Generative Dreaming, a series of conversations I facilitate around art making. In each episode, two artists of different disciplines chat about what, why, and how they make what they make, as well as their visions for the future and the wider world. Their conversations show us how we persist through courage, community, and creative strategy, not just as artists, but also as people. In this episode, artists Ashley He and Daniel Chong talk about their relationships with audience. Using past artworks as springboards, they show us how acts of articulation, connection, and misunderstanding occur when people see and experience their work. Just a small note that this episode was recorded prior to Heartstopper cast member Kit Connors coming out as bisexual. Hi, uh, I'm Daniel, and I do art and curation. So um, my artistic practice mostly involves of sculpture, usually things on the floor, small objects, um, mostly of objects that you find in your everyday space. Curatorially, I kind of extend what I can't really achieve in my artworks, um, and they usually take a more kind of inquisitive tone of the everyday um, questions that I ask myself. Hi, I'm Ashley. I'm a visual artist that works with kinetic sculpture, so that refers to anything that moves. And also, with I work with creative technology, so like a bit of um, basic engineering and works that relate to things such as like algorithms. Um, I think my focus is on mainly creating generative experiences with a focus on medium and material. Could you guys tell me a bit about the access points for the audience when they enter into your work? How do they first encounter your work? What do you think they see? Mm, For me, it's super straightforward. It's a kinetic work, so immediately you'll catch people's eyes. Sometimes the sound of the motors in the work fills the space. Everyone will be like, oh, where's that sound coming from? Or like, oh my gosh, this is moving. And then straight away the phones come out and then... That's like the first interaction that most people have with my work. Yeah. It's kind of like attention grabbing. It has an attention grabbing effect. Yeah, it's the it's a clickbait for the show. Is there something that you lean into? Mm, I mean it's nice. It's like it's flattering to get attention like that. And on the most basic level, I do think that I like my works to be accessible in the most like easiest possible way and if that is to like create some kind of movement that that catches people's eye then I'm fine with that what about you Daniel so I'm I'm assuming I'm assuming what the audience are thinking and I think it usually starts with a lot of confusion (laughs) first Um, I have a bias towards putting objects on the ground I think in the same way as Ashley there's a certain immediacy to it but not an immediacy to understand the work but more of an immediacy I feel like the work is too close to reality. Mm. There's always that moment where people are asking like, is this artwork or is this object on the floor? Because that hierarchy is gone, right? 
And then people take some time and then they, they realize subtle things like maybe a spotlight is there or it is a slightly modified object. And then they're like, oh, okay, so this one feels like an artwork. And then they kind of warm up to it. So I, I would like to think that's a very slow process to it. And also my works usually are very small or if not uh, more, not as central. It, it's really like uh, booting up your computer to looking at my work. I also would think, oddly enough, my works are quite hard to photograph because they are like not at eye level so they're not at the optimal length yeah I, I've started to think of my works more as an event rather than a sculpture even so like you encounter it and you go through a process I've been thinking about how the work can be seen as like a image like as you walk and you see the object in situ with either other objects or in the space I, I like that that mental image to be created and like to be kind of seared into the viewer's mind so then it becomes like it's a it's a poetic picture almost so I'm like I'm leaning more now to thinking of my works less as sculptures, more as like events or like occurrences. Yeah, I think for I mean not that I've seen like a ton of your work, but most of the work I've seen of yours is seared in my mind. Like I actually cannot forget your work. That's so annoying. <laughs> Yay, effective. Uh, but it is effective. Yeah, and I I've always liked that there is that closeness. So once I see, I'm like, oh, this feels like my house, or like it feels like I've seen this before, but. Now it's weird, in a good way, you know? Okay. Actually, ran random question, because I've been dealing with a lot of kinetic works or, or like moving things recently. At what point, for example, if one of the 60 motors die, how do you determine when that constitutes the artwork being like no longer an artwork? It's like a, that ship problem, right? Like at what point is it an artwork and what point is like you, you have to take it off the wall and like say it's under maintenance for you? Because, like, everything breaks down kinetic-wise. Like, hot spoiler. Everything breaks down at least once. Yes. That's, like, that's the cold, hard truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, if you want to make a kinetic work, two-week show is a perfect length. Anything more than that is, like, stress and nightmare yes. and, like, thoughts and prayers. I eat my exhibition now. Everything is, like, breaking down. Yeah. To answer your question, I would say very ideally and very optimistically, no, it doesn't stop being an artwork. Unless it poses like as like a safety hazard, then yeah, then I think at that point it's like, okay, that's too much. Like it has to be removed. It has to be like sectioned away so that people cannot interact with the work. But if not, even if all the motors are spoiled, even if it doesn't move anymore, as long as it's not like hanging off the wall on one mm. screw or electrocuting people, I think it can still like exist and that's still an artwork to me. It's super sad when even like a small part breaks down and then the curators just like close off the work and then people will be like, oh, uh, sorry. And then they will just like walk away and then they don't even like look at the work again. I'm pretty sure like the work itself has its own like aesthetic quality and you can still imagine how it would run if it was working. So just like remove all the attention from the work like that immediately. The moment just doesn't work perfectly. It's a bit sad. When you say kinetic sculpture, I guess the more prominent feature for the general audience is the kinetic portion, not the sculpture portion. So once the kinetic part fails, they're like, oh, it's over. Like, it's not there anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't exist anymore. It becomes invisible in the show. A video of pigeons by Ashley He. So when you 
first encounter the work, um, I think first you see like flashes of light um, and then you realize they are actually coming from lenticular prints that are, you know, moving left and right. And so they're individual lenticular prints on the floor attached to servos that are moving it. They are kind of on an acrylic base, which makes them even shinier. And so the first thing you see is the flashes and then you start hearing the motors. You know, you realize that the, the pictures are actually of pigeons, like flying or taking flight. So actually, how much do you guys consider audience when you make your work? Is it important to, uh, I, I guess, how much of the user experience are you considering, you know, when you make your work? The first thought is not be like, okay, what should I show the world today, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm interested in this idea and if people are also interested, good for them. But if not, then here's something nice to look at. So then the role of the audience is just like quite a general viewer for you? Like they're not, mm. you know? I don't think I have like a specific audience that I made my work for. I think it's quite accessible to a general viewer, also given that it's kinetic, blah, blah, blah. It grabs attention more easily. And I'm totally fine with it just like existing on that level. Just basic form of enjoyment, like just visual enjoyment for people. So do you get satisfaction from seeing people look at your work? Do you, do you like being liked? <laughs> or is it just like a side, like it's a side effect of having, of making the work? It's like, oh, I have to, the audience has to see at some point. I guess your previous answers were favoring, like, you know, you make a work that is supposed to be more accessible. Mm. But then it seems that that accessibility is happenstance because of the kinetic work. Does the audience being pleasantly surprised or, or enjoying your work actually be material? Mm, I think it's more like, yes, obviously when people look at my work, I'm flattered. But the threshold of joy that I get when people look at my work is like a lot lower than me myself having completed the work and having put it out. Resolving a work and like seeing it myself for the first time, it working and everything and it coming all together. I think that is like the peak joy for me. And then afterwards in the presentation, when people come look at it, when people like enjoy it, dislike it, whatever, I, I'm happy that people have opinions and people can like interact with the work because it is meant to be interacted with given its nature. But then that the joy is just not on the same level as making the work for myself. What about you, Daniel? Do you feel joy when the audience dips their head to look at your work on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe they look confused or they smile or I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think my relationship to the audience is like always evolving. I mean, of course, that, that was always funny, right? The first like year and a half. Now it's just like, yeah, it will happen. <laughs> and I think like audiences now kind of like understand it enough to not look awkward while doing it. They're performing for you. I think so. I feel like, you know, the thing where people do where they lean in to a painting and then you're like, it doesn't matter, right? You see people do that in the galleries and like, it's like they learn this somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, audiences, is, it's interesting because the way they react, it's more reflective from, of them or of the exhibition it's in or the context it's in. To me, whenever I display a work in a different setting or even in different, like the same artwork in a different exhibition or adjacent to other works, it, it always changes the way the audience looks at it. Because I think my works are kind of, I wouldn't say accessible, but they don't have a very specific handle or like a specific 
context. They, they are meant to be a little bit more nebulous. So the way an audience responds to it really does... It's, it's like kind of audience feedback of what this formula is. Am I making sense? I'm getting too sciencey. The um, formula of the exhibition and the space and that context. Yeah. I, I am quite protective of specific contexts that my works are in. I would rather something be looser than too specific because I, I don't like to kill the connotation or the openness of a work because then I feel like the audience come in thinking they already know the work before they even seen it. And I think that, that's my greatest worry. Lah. Um, but yes, I do enjoy that when the audiences can take something away from it. it. might not be particularly something pleasant. I feel like as long as they feel that they can see themselves in the work, that's quite beautiful for me. Because then the, the work has a life outside of the space and outside of my mind, right? They go on and maybe relook at the objects in their home in a different way or, this, or that topic in a different way. You first smile to yourself, you know, you find it quite funny. Or this effort to make the picture or a picture of a bunch of pigeons fly. So it's not just one image, it's like, I think about 15 to 20. They, and they, they form like a crowd of pigeons on the ground as if you'd see them in like a park. And them like flying within the lenticular print. Um, in perpetual like pogo tree, um, kind of on the ground. So Daniel, you talked about not wanting to kind of be super specific about what the audience is, you know, taking away from your work. And I wanted to ask, how, how do you all decide how much to say about your practice or about a work, right? Because in the limited amount of time I've spent in the visual arts space, I've just read so much excessive writing. All these texts, whether it's exhibition texts or wall texts, that just uses a lot of, a lot of big words that don't say a lot for me. And I always wondered where is that insecurity coming from for these artists? Like why is there a need to explain so much and make it so academic or like, you know, kind of prove this, I've thought through this in this theory kind of way, right? So I'm, I'm also curious to know how you guys think about that for your work. Like how much do you say? How much do you not say? Because I think that I guess there's a happy middle where the audience will have enough to go on, but not so much that they're like, ah, your work is about loss. You know? I, I love the accent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, how, how, do you, how do you think about that for yourself? Or like, if it's not text that you use, how do you convey your work to people? Okay, I think in your preface, I don't think I'm making my work super ubiquitous or general. I, I always imagine this, right? I, I imagine myself narrowing the potential possibilities to like a few of acceptable connotations that I feel like still resonate with the work. Versus like it can be anything you want it to be. I think that's a bit lazy because I do feel the artist has certain powers in shaping the work, even though any audience can take what they want from it. We, we still have certain powers in doing that, right? Be it color, connotation, presentation, and as you said, writing, text, titles. To answer your question, why I think people write so much in certain languages that are inaccessible, I think it's for a different audience or they're trying to talk to a different art crowd. I personally try to stay away from theories a lot in a very weird way, not because I think theories are inaccessible. I think the speed at which theory develops is not enough for the things I'm thinking about. There is definitely an art historical context. Like any of my works, you can go back to like Found Object, Duchamp, whatever. But I feel like the way it has evolved, it's too quick now, either in my brain or in this very fast evolving world for any specific theory to 
be kind of a good catch-all. Even Think Theory, I think in itself, it has evolved way too fast. I think the more is kind of broken now. So that's why I try not to reference any theory because then it kind of locks in the artwork in a very specific context. So I try to be more personal. And this is something I realized like literally within this month. The more personal you get, oddly enough, it allows your work to be more open. Because you get so personal, people then don't feel afraid about having their own interpretations because they know that that is the core and that will stay and then what's around it is, is theirs to take in some sense. But yeah, I, I try not to give away too much in writing. I tend to suggest something personal without you know specifying if it's about my partner or if it's real so that it I have my own privacy to a certain extent. It's not so much that I want to keep the audience away. It's more that I do think art practice-wise, we are also evolving into a time period where the ethics of how you write like how a curator writes about an artist, the ethics of trauma mining, identity politics is becoming quite important. 50 years ago, you could really like dig into their history, like where they were born, who their sister was, um, their mental illness and everything. But now that's becoming a bit, to do that now, it feels a bit taboo. It feels like, you know, there are certain boundaries that you should respect even as an artist that gives or as a curator that writes, right? Did I answer your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. You did. You did. I'm, I'm also thinking about it in relation to like, you are saying that it's a time where, you know, people are more careful about trauma mining and identity politics and, you know, digging into histories, right? But it's also the, we're still in the era of celebrity culture and people becoming like figures and brands, like your Instagram pages, even if you're a private, like single individual user with no reason to brand yourself, you're like, you feel the need to brand yourself or like, oh, now this is my look and people understand me this way or, you know, they know me like this. There are two ways. Lah. There's still this interest in like the artist as a celebrity of sorts, even if it's a minor celebrity, right? It's like having access to the artist, right? Like it feels yeah. like you have that. I, I, have a, I have an interesting counterpoint because I think even in celebrity culture, there's, there's this shift like Heartstopper, right? Um, very good series for anyone who wants to watch. But uh, Kate Connor, whose uh, sexuality is unknown, has publicly came out and said that I will not be revealing it. This is none of your business. And then everyone in the cast, like those who are either not out or, you know, not clear, have chose to remain, you know, like we're not going to talk about it. If we, they want to come out, it's up to them, right? And also I think it is kind of bled into the press where I don't know how true this is, but apparently all the interviews have not actually asked them to identify who they are, like what their orientation is. So I do think there is, there is a shift happening already, um, and it's, it's, you know, nothing ever comes from the art specifically. It kind of bleeds down, right, from everything. So I think it's changing. Hmm. What about you, Ashley? In terms of, like, how you frame your work? I don't think it's, like, wrong that people want to, like, write a lot about their works and, like, use whatever, like you mentioned, big terms, maybe theories that are difficult to understand. Because I'm pretty sure that all of us as artists, like, We've thought a lot about what we made and we want to just like share those thoughts with the world. And I guess not all of us are like amazing writers. And some most of the time when we write, we write for ourselves. So we understand what we're saying. And then it sounds like what we put out is like the most concise way of how we condense all the research that we've done. But then to other people, it's just inaccessible. So I get the one to like default to that because it feels nice. But I think also curators are important. Like 
curators who actually like understand your practice and write about you in a way that is more accessible for other people that are reading. And also like it's just a different perspective. If you found like the perfect curator, everything they write is as if they just took a look into your brain. And so I I hope more artists get to like work with curators who can like describe them so well. In my case, I'm fortunate enough to have worked with curators that I feel like have represented me how I would like to be represented. And also because I'm not a great writer. I don't think in terms of like writing on all these like words and language. So to have someone to be able to articulate that for me is super amazing. Because I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I feel. Except that now it's in writing and other people can share this same feeling. I don't think like in my works, there's some kind of basic understanding of what I am pointing towards that might not be very explicit, but I guess still comes out in terms of the audience's own familiarity and context to like the materials that are used or certain presentations. They can figure it out themselves. For example, like I guess I'm quite known for this work, a video of pigeons where it's like lenticular prints on motors and so they just like move they flip on their own so then the prints get animated so i guess there's some basic understanding that oh this is kind of like a quirky work because i might not be able to understand immediately why this is humorous to me but i know that it's humorous and then maybe if they take it further they'd be like oh yeah it's like a static print but then now because it moves on its own it becomes sort of like a video maybe some of them make that connection maybe some of them don't but there's still that sense of oh there's something more to this work than it just being moving birds so it's like about letting your work speak for itself right like trusting the work to speak for itself kind of but I guess I do drop hints in the medium itself so it's not really just like I put it there and be like oh yeah, you're supposed to understand it without any help, that kind of thing. This might be what you're getting at, but I think it's just having different tools to communicate. Sometimes it's a curator, sometimes it's an exhibition, sometimes it can be the art space that is like more known for certain artworks, right? Um, sometimes the title, medium, material, or even the artist themselves who has a brand that people expect to. But yeah, no, I kind of agree with what Ashley says. It's about some artists don't have the privilege of having these tools even as simple as like being able to write in an accessible manner or even access to curators that are invested in them or their practice. I don't know what I'm getting at, but yeah, I, I do think knowing more or having access to more does help. That's why we need you, Daniel. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Curator, writer, uh, essayist. I shy now. Yeah. <laughs> I think curators are important part for my practice also. Because like, Sometimes I might not be thinking about something about my work, but then when I see what the curator writes about my work, suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, this is actually something I'm interested in. And now that it is like out there, written, then it's easier for me to like take back and like reflect also. A pair of worn jeans containing the replica of split Fruit Loop cereal forming the Monoceros constellation. Open bracket. A discreet joy. Lost. Close bracket. Open bracket. An absence that found filling. Close bracket. By Daniel Chong.
a pair of worn jeans, like you came home and took off your pants and dumped it on the floor. It's like a pair of dark grey to black denim jeans. And inside like the main pants hole is just like a pool of milk with maybe 30-ish bits of fruit loops just floating around in the pants. That's the work. So what do you all think is your brand? Objects on the floor. <laughs> okay, nah, no, I, I think that's, that's what I joke about. But I think, very weirdly enough, and, and it's hard to articulate, I think I have a very distinct style that I didn't think was very distinct. Where people would be able to identify that, oh, did, did Daniel do this? <laughs> so to me, I always thought I was, I was a bit more, like I didn't have any fixed material or style. Because I, I do jump around a lot. Sometimes I'm very obsessed with one material. For example, I used to be known to play with balloons for like a good period in like my lifestyle years. And then I ended up working with flowers for a good two years that were rotting and dying. And then I was known for that. And then when I came out from from that, I was known for like being the cereal and biscuit boy, right? So like at every point, like how people recognize my work has always been changing. So I, I just always assume I never had a brand. But recently I realized people were able to identify my work because there was a certain, I guess, ability that I had to be able to occupy a, a work that is in between familiar and disfamiliar. Um, I wouldn't go so as far to call it uncanny, la, but I, I guess that is that brand, right? It sits between this sliver of like, this looks familiar and I can find this in my home, but at the same time, this is poking something in my like recess memory that I might not want to be poked or to, to be probed. So I realized that that's the brand I have. Objects that do that. Okay, again, as audience, I, I do sense that specific sliver. So it's, it is very recognizable. And I think for me, it's like kind of like this weird tender feeling. When I see though, I'm like, oh, a bit pain. I'm like, okay, I think it's dead. Because <laughs> 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 it hurts a little bit. Yeah, and I, yeah, recognizable objects. But then like, how do you feel about having a brand like, do you like it or would you prefer to like not have it or does it make life easier for you? It, it's really weird because like at every point of the way, I've always been actively thinking to not have a brand. I'm not saying not have a brand, but not to pander, which is very weird. Then end up, I, I already, that becomes it, right? So I, I think having a brand is kind of inevitable. Someone remember you for something. Um, it's more so what you want. I feel like there's certain artists that want to have a brand because it helps people understand whatever material they're using, right? Like like Joseph Boyles and Felt and Honey, right? Like now it's iconically tied to Boyce because he's been using it for decades, right? So it, it depends on your practice. I think for me, my practice is kind of more fluid. It's not about the object per se, but the way it's processed and thought about. It's about the translation, not so much the physical object. So to me, maybe that is the brand that I am more comfortable being okay with. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about you, Ashley? Also, because I do feel you have a brand in its okay, own what? way. Let's hear it. What is it? <laughs> wow. Okay, so first and foremost, it is a kinetic work. There's not a lot of kinetic work out there, at least in my opinion. So that's recognizable already. And then there's always this playful quality about it. And I think maybe this is not your goal, but there's always this minimalist feeling to it. For example, like a printer has been stripped back. So I see the inside parts and then you isolate one part of the printer and you make its function apparent to me. So there's always this quality that something has been peeled back and then it's treated in a playful or maybe more like... Um, sometimes it's meditative. 
like with the switch array work on the wall, I always found it very meditative, even though there's a playfulness about that interaction. And I guess the cable images vinyl stickers on the floor is <laughs> it's just very playful, lah. You know, even though it doesn't have necessarily move or it doesn't necessarily play, but it is playing. So that's my sense. I mean then also you do talk about your your visual um your visual brand as the person with with uh, bleached bangs. What do you call this? Money piece? I don't know. What money do you call piece. It? <laughs> yeah, because money piece is when, you know, the front pieces of your bangs are just bleached. And that's called a money piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a name for it called money. I okay. I mean, the audience, whoever is listening, y'all just go and Google that. But I'm Google quite sure. Ashley. Quite sure it's called a money piece, and I think Ashley, you know, your part of your brand is your money piece, lah. Wait, <laughs> wait. Know? Can you shout out your Instagram so people can like look up your <laughs> your, your money piece? Like what My is Instagram is at Ashley Chuti A S H L E Y Z H I Q I. Yeah, follow me leave <laughs> like, your comments subscribe. below if you believe that it's a money piece mm. <laughs> but yeah you're not wrong as much as I try to deny it no, yeah I, I think I do have quite a clear brand like the very fact that in introductions it's just easier to just be like I'm a kinetic artist and then immediately people are just like oh okay okay like oh just sculpture that move lah and then like that's it it's easier also in terms of like when other people like want to talk about you. So then they will introduce you to other people. It's like, oh, do you know this person? Like they do kinetic work, blah, blah. So then it's like, it's basically, it's just two words. They can describe it in two words. They don't have to like pull up like your, your CV and be like, oh, this artist that works with this, 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 and this, this, this. So then I guess in that aspect, it makes life a bit easier. For me, I don't think that's, I have a big issue with that also because I'm okay with like, making kinetic work for a long time it's not like oh I'll, I'll be like in a crisis if one day I just suddenly don't want to make kinetic work anymore and it's like oh no then what what am I like people are going to get a wrong impression of me now and although I have made works that are like not kinetic but it still deals with like a lot of tech more towards like the algorithm side so it's still kind of relatable to be like oh she's like dealing with iron tech and they can just leave it as that Creative technologist. <laughs> oh no, no, not creative technologist. Like, no, that's like that word's like cancel, okay? Yeah. Like, if I'm described as a creative technologist, I'm a failure. No, that's like not acceptable in my head. Okay, wait, wait what what about it? Like I'm kind of I'm kind of new to this like um curse word. Curse word. Yeah, yeah. like quite good. Why is it so cursed for you? I don't like firstly like what what the heck is a technologist? What, oh no, like what, what is it? Like, how right? Could, like, but why, why is, is the label to you like so offensive? Like, because you think people who use it don't know what they're talking about? or I don't know, it's like, firstly, like the word technologist doesn't look cool. <laughs> and then also like, when you say you're a technologist, then like, what do people even think when you say you're a technologist? Like, what is that? Are you like technician? Are you like a developer? What, what are you? What is kind of a, a technologist? Right? Yeah. So then people doing like projection mapping, we be like, oh, I'm a creative technologist. Then people doing maybe like some quirky web development and be like, oh, I'm a creative technologist. And it's like, okay, so then what What does that word actually mean? Also, it looks too, it feels like it's trying to be too professional for me. It's trying to be a bit, maybe not say totally commercial, but the label feels a bit too serious for me. Creative technologist. I I do think that even in the you know your your brand of kinetic artists, not creative technologists kind of thing. I I do I do feel people have kind of 
Not say misbranded, but misunderstood your work because of that. Is it misunderstood? Or like they just want something that moves and then they don't care much about that impulse. A lot of the curators or people Mm. that approach you might have misunderstood your practice or have treated you like a creative technologist. Yes. Or expected you to deliver something when you're like, you don't have a team, you don't have a company, you're just one person. And your intentions while kinetic are not tech. That's so true. That's actually very true. When people approach me to do work, they always most definitely come with like an expectation of what I do. People in general don't work a lot with art and tech or even if they do, they don't have like a super deep understanding of the variety. And so like when people come to me and be like, oh, I want to do some art tech stuff, they'll be like, oh yeah, she can do it, she can do it. Even though it might be like completely different from like my previous work, whether it be asking me to do digital mural shit or... Okay, no no offense to digital mural <laughs> stuff, but but that's not what I do, you know. That's not that's not me. I, I don't just do anything that got tech or art can already. There's still like a specific style and it's more like physical installation based tech artworks. So it's not like I just do anything and everything that is tech related. And then because people see me as I don't know, maybe a creative technologist in their head, they think that Every single one of my works include code. And so every conversation is always like, oh, when you use code in your work, blah, blah, blah. Then like they, they end up trying to like theorize it a lot and be like, oh, about talking about like authorship and blah, blah, blah. Since like I'm using code, I'm using a machine when literally sometimes I don't even use code in my work at all. So I, I guess there is a lot of like misunderstanding sometimes when people approach me. I guess also because your practice involves the buzzword tech. So then it gets caught up in all the the flows of hype and non-hype and that's going around art and tech. And so, yeah, I guess people do sort of reduce your work to that technological aspect. Like, oh, we want some art and tech in this show. So let's ask this artist to do it. Uh, we want a little bit of interaction on our mural. So let's contact this artist. Yeah, it reduces a lot of what you do to the that element and to supplement what exists with some interactive element. I guess you just navigate that, but like, how do you feel or like, how do you? I I don't think tech for me is like the front and center of my work. I don't want it to be there. It just so happens that it is a tool that helps me like produce what I want. And as I said in my introduction, I'm more interested in material. And so when people shift that focus away and be like, oh, she's a tech artist and then it just creates like the wrong context for the work already. I think for me, like it's so weird because I, I kind of want the opposite where people don't talk to me about sculpture enough. <laughs> so like I'm very clearly working with objects and, and a more sculptural thing. But a lot of the questions I get are like, you know, very understandably about the object, be it like, you know, a biscuit, color, how do you make it versus like more formal questions so i i do blame it on myself because you know i I don't specifically reference a lot of these kind of things when i I write or describe the work they're they're always more central about the object but man i i wish to talk about like what the immediacy of putting an object on the floor Mm -hmm. or like what does scale do to a work to the audience to a space like what is the function of public artwork and sculpture specifically in singapore when there's no space to do any of that I think like these are the things that are like are always there for me, but it's like there's no outlet. Because <laughs> mm. no one asks you about that, right? They ask you this this glass is very interesting or this material is very interesting, versus like why do you choose something temporal? 
what is that effect or how do you see the work being represented in a gallery context or museum context mm. which are all very like they're very specific to the medium right mm. they're very sculptural specific questions who knows maybe they would emerge as essays or you know more curatorial premises but those, those are the questions that I, I crave now not that I don't enjoy the questions now it's just you know it's a lack thereof so it's a, it's a very strange to see <laughs> or as she's getting boxed in a different medium like I, I kind of want to be put in that box to, to ask those questions but I guess also conclusively it's like hey guys Ashley and Daniel are both they do sculpture yeah can you all ask them about it yeah this is just PSA <laughs> ask them about the sculpture element don't ask them about the tech element and the object elements of their work you know yeah cause like our sculpture train also so a lot of my sensibilities are just rooted in sculpture so I guess maybe when we both have a, like, a greater interest in the more formal elements but don't get asked those kind of questions it's because also the audience don't have like the same sensibilities as us when they look at the work. They're more used to thinking about more thematic stuff. So they tend to like go towards those kind of questions. No one really defaults like the more like formal aspects of the work. So what's your favourite artwork to have made and which of your works do you think is the audience's favourite? My favourite artwork is the artwork that I'm going to make next. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Such a beautiful answer, right? No, okay, but like, all kidding aside, my favourite work is one that arguably does not have a lot of airtime. It's like one of the two photo works that I've only ever done. Um, so, so this work is, wow, when was it made? 2018, I think. So it's called uh, a mark of warmth. It's like a sixty or eighty centimeter wide and like um fifty centimeter tall photo, and it's a photo of like a sunburned back. So if it's it's of a male back that is clearly sunburned, and then there are like two white spotches near the waist area, slightly above the waist area. So they kind of look like bra straps, but they actually are areas that have not been sunburned because someone has been hugging them while he was standing under the sun. So it's it's called a mark of warmth because I, I think it's about taking that intimacy and that warmth of a hug and kind of stretching that out to like a sunburn. So it was playing with those ideas of temperature and uh, that register of warmth. It's my favorite really because I think it kind of encapsulates the subtlety for me that when you look at it, you don't entirely notice it's a sunburn or you don't see the performance, right? It could easily be a two-hour performance of just two people standing there. But, but I like that it isn't, that you have to recreate that in your mind and, and wonder what the narrative is, right? Like, who is hugging? Or who is this person even? Whose back you only see? You know, it could have very well been the front or and the silhouette of the person, but I really wanted it to be this almost subtle thing where you don't know who is being hugged, who is hugging, what the story is, but you get kind of the emotional feeling of that. The idea of holding on too long or, or letting go or that mark that burns for now and fades away. Um, so I, I, I keep coming back to that work because it really feels like it's an event. It's an event that has happened and you know it's temporal and that photograph or the medium of photography captures both the sculptural quality of it but also kind of like more event-based suggestion of it. Well, but conversely, uh, what I think is like a fan favourite is the biscuits. 
I, I'm starting to think it's because it, it's too familiar for people. It, it is a very fun object. It's something that is enjoyable. But I think it also triggers some kind of nostalgia for people that I didn't initially realize that it was really very strong, actually. And also everyone just loves something that's quite funny. I think what, what was poetic is mostly taken to be more humorous than anything. And then when I explain to people it's kind of more uh, subtle longing, then they get it. But the first reaction is always like humor. It's, it's a fun joke, which I guess I'm okay with. I can't reject that, right? Be- <laughs> I, I can't dictate that. But it, it's nice that they are also open to it, its original intention alongside that initial reaction of humor. Thinking about the biscuit work, there's also that, that weird sensation of being very close to you that's a little bit funny, that's a little bit we, awkward. Which is not what the audience gets, surprisingly. Is it? I think that's more of like a um, if you know Daniel kind of thing. But I think for me, it's this understanding that your mouth has been on that thing. <laughs> which that's the thing, not a lot of audience understand. They just think it's like a half-eaten biscuit. But someone had to eat it and obviously it's you. That's kind of <laughs> gross and awkward and close and intimate and weird. Which is, well, which is my, my intention, right? But it doesn't really translate when I think it gets out there. Or maybe it's, it's the effect of being replicated so much, it loses its grossness or the scale. Like what? No one believes that you ate so many biscuits. <laughs> what? I, I really don't know. Like the, the, the feeling is really very different. That's why I'm like, oh, I, I can see why. But it's for an entirely different reason than I would have expected. Maybe it's also how they encounter it. Because I, I mean, I had the great fortune <laughs> of being receiving it in the mail in that vacuum pack. So for context, this biscuit has like many, I wouldn't say iterations, but trials. So like the very initial ones were, the ones that Kai is talking about are like real biscuits that I bit and put in a vacuum seal bag. That I, I, are they rotting now? I'm very curious. It's been like a year, right? I didn't trust myself to continue staying on with the lifespan, so I got rid of them earlier. I just felt very close to you and very uncertain about the organic matter that was yeah. in so, there. So, yeah, okay, like, I have to preface the way Kiai experienced it. It was very early on in the experiments. So, like, there are many iterations where some were dipped in resin and that, that could survive. And then there were others that were made entirely out of agile clay that were not really biscuits. Mm, I got that version. Yeah, you got that version. And then the most recent one is, like, one giant three-meter one in Bishan Park. It's different. It's completely different. But the motif is the same. I guess I'm mentioning this because it's that specific feeling where I got the vacuum pack thing and I'm like, I can see the bite marks. I can see the little biscuit crumbs that got vacuum packed also. I can press the biscuit. Like that's too, too close, close to Daniel because yeah. I didn't know you very well. Then I was like, I don't know if I should be this close to Daniel <laughs> at this point. You know, so I, maybe that's why that feeling came through so strongly because I could actually touch that vacuum packed random fun fact like I had so many fun stories because this this was during like the lockdown so like 2020 apparently some people still have their biscuits now and it's growing like a little bit of more oh my so other people someone does not have more but like the, the the words the details of the biscuit are like so soft that they are like abstract now it's just like one shape whereas some other people like their cats attack the biscuit so this was Desiree the, the cats clawed at the biscuit like on within the first month and tried to eat the biscuit I was like wow <laughs> this is just so strange and then now adding your story that you threw it away because you felt too close also because I held it up to my nose and I could smell the biscuit oh. yeah 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 so it has like, a biscuit smell I don't know why it's not safe if oh, it's gonna grow it's like more and your saliva's in there and it's still leaking out I, okay so I don't know if it's that's because like the butter oil is from outside 
or like that specific plastic I have is like porous in air but I don't think so because like it's waterproof enough so it's, it was a very confusing experience for like not just people but me as well how about you Ashley? Uh, my favorite work I think is actually this work from 2017 so it's this work called Lightwind where it's basically a 3 by 3 by 3 meter suspended piece where there were like wooden sticks that moved on its own so that it looked like branches moving in the wind. I kind of like that work the best for more like personal reasons because it's one of my first major larger scale kinetic works and also because it's my kinetic artist debut vibes work so that one has like a special place in my heart super sentimental because the first time trying something so big something so different and back then I was in school and then a lot of my mentors were just telling me oh why why can't you just make it powered by wind why do you have to actually like add electronics for it to move on its own like that when you can achieve the same thing with a gust of wind so I'm like no it's not the same thing so I guess there's a lot of struggle into like realizing that work and finding out the best ways to do certain things at the start and like how to like maintain a work at that scale or so. So I think that was a very proud moment for me when I saw it realized. So that's my favorite work. What about the audiences? Is it a pigeon work? Or is it the, the motor one? Because that one's getting a lot of traction as well. I still think it's the pigeon work. Like favorite, favorite lah. Like, not that you're known for, but, like, favourite, favourite. Like, audience favourite? Yeah. Because, like, I, I, I think people approach you for the pigeon, but, like, what do you think their favourite is? Are they two different things? I feel like they're kind of the same thing. It, it could be, it could be. Because until today, like, I still have people bringing up to me the pigeon work. This was, like, what, four, three years ago? 2018 or 2019 because like there was this whole era where I was pigeon girl that was your branding that was my branding yeah so I think maybe my pigeon world is the audience favourite because the thing is like everybody likes pigeons okay not like like pigeon like everybody knows pigeon so they'd be like oh pigeon haha that kind of vibe and also because like the way the work was presented also was in front of a shop window so you could sort of see the reflection of the work on the window so that it looks like the work is on the, the street outside. So then it looks like pigeons on a street or so. So I felt like a lot of people resonated a lot with that work. And that's why I was known for that work until now, actually. But I don't know, if, even though it's like audience favorite, I guess I kind of liked it also. I'm not mad that that's the audience favorite. I don't know, maybe if it was another work, I wouldn't feel the same. But I think also because it was quite successful in terms of the audience getting a deeper insight into my work as compared to my other works, they were able to understand why the work was a bit more humorous than some of my other works. Like when you mentioned that my works are very playful, sometimes that doesn't come out as well. But within the pigeon work, it managed to come out. And that's like a huge step already. So I want to end off with this this question, which is, Imagine it's 10 years from now, so 21st October 2032. You have new work in an exhibition and it's opening night. Someone who has just seen or experienced your work comes up to you. What do they say? Well, I, I, I hope my practice has evolved to a point where they want to know more about the work, where they ask, why are you so interested in plants? That's my current team now. Plants, what about them is a metaphor for XYZ? And how do you see 
or, or maybe they can talk about how my my practice expanded like oh you know I, I follow your work as a sculptor now you're doing so many different mediums why whatever um, so hopefully more curious and, and confusing and expanding and driving those interests because 10 years is a long time <laughs> I mean like what 37 be old damn I didn't think about that Okay, so it's what, 21st October 2032 at my new opening. Someone comes up to me and they're like, congratulations, I've been following your practice for 10 years now and I really love your work. Keep up the good work. Yeah, and then just don't talk to me. That's it? Yeah. Oh. If they want to talk to me, wanna, like we can have like a chat, we can have a coffee sometime else. But I just don't think I want to talk to people at my opening. I don't want to do the thing where every conversation ends up as a mini artist talk. That's what always ends up happening. Because people, whether they're generally curious or they just want to be polite, they just be like, oh, you tell me more about your work, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, it's okay, it's fine. Like, just see it and, and then just like give me like some words of affirmation. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Generative Dreaming. Daniel's current project is the second edition of Stranger's Touch, which has a pop-up running at the Somerset Red Bus until 18 December 2022. More information at strangers.touch on Instagram. You can also follow Ashley at Ashley Zhiqi, A-S-H-L-E-Y-Z-H-I-Q-I, and Daniel at I-I-S-D-A-N-N-Y-C-H-O-N-G. C-H-O-N-G Generative Dreaming is a podcast by Feelers, which is housed within Potato Productions. The incredible music you hear is by Madam Data. We'll catch you in the next episode.